Hello, I'm Sam Clements, and welcome to the 90-minute or less film fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90-minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today we're joined by Kat Brown, freelance arts and lifestyle journalist for publications such as The Telegraph, The Mail on Sunday, and Pilot. She is also a podcast presenter and producer and an Archer's mega fan. Hello, Kat. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the pod. I am absolutely delighted. Short films are my joy. It's fun, right? It's like, I think it's essential today. There's so much, many things to watch. There's so many things to watch. And also it just feels like editors have either got slacker or we are now doomed to be in the cinema for minimum two and a half hours every time we go in. And with that and adverts and trailers and credits, just no. No, no. There's definitely a consensus, which is, no, all films should be two hours and 20 minutes long. Definitely a certain type of film. I feel like we've got carried away with the fact that all films must now be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And they really just don't. No, thanks. No, apart from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Indeed. <laughs> Keep it sacred. So you are an Archer's mega fan. I am. We are tragically sitting here in my sitting room with my cat, Ambridge, named after the village and the Archers. And in a very sort of meta thing, I'm wearing a sweatshirt, which has a knitted emblem of Ambridge on it, gifted to me by the lovely Helen O'Hara of the Empire podcast. And I've just been to the Archers conference this weekend to write a piece of The Telegraph. So it's all very fanboyish and tragic, but I loved every minute. It's great. That's incredible. I am in awe. I guess The Archers is relevant to this pod in a way in that their narratives are always 90 minutes or less. <laughs> that was seamless, Sam. Well done. <laughs> has there ever been like a mega Archers episode, which is they've done a feature-length version. They have. They did one a couple of years ago, which was sort of like 12 Angry Men, but dedicated to the village of Ambridge. There was a storyline in which one of the characters, Helen Titchener, stabbed her gaslighting, coercive controlling, basically abusive husband, Rob, and she was being tried for attempted murder. But actually, the wider thing of this storyline was so lovely because fans found it so upsetting to listening, listen to and they really wanted to do something that ultimately £160,000 was raised in donations for the charity Refuge, which was absolutely fantastic and also entirely indicative of both how kind Archer's fans can be and also how incredibly involved. A lot of fans don't like it if you call any of the people in it actors. Ooh. It's a docudrama. It's definitely not a Radio 4 drama. So we talked about cinema a little bit at the top. I know you're a huge film fan and you've written like so many amazing film reviews and you've done, I bumped into you at film junkets in the past. So you do a bit of film for work, but film is also a pleasurable activity in your oh, personal time? Hugely. I mean, I, I, my first, my first journalism job was actually when Empire had a trainee scheme a million years ago. So one of my very first jobs was being sent out to cover the Wallace and Gromit and the Weir Rabbit uh, junket, which was terrifying and absolutely delightful and I subsequently write about film for The Telegraph and various other places but I mean it's it's beyond a cliche to say that oh film is such a big part of my life but it, I mean it is the first time I remember injuring myself is when I was five and walked straight into a lamppost because I was pretending to be Sid Charisse from Singing in the Rain. Well, we have invited you to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest to curate a film. When we first asked you to be part of this festival and choose a film, 
What went through your head? How did you think about what to choose? It's, it's one of those things, as soon as people ask you about things that are so much the fabric of your being, it's like, but I, oh God, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to go in some kind of like trance-like state to try and remember. So I think I, I think I did the really tragic thing of Googling what films are under 90 minutes and went through a list, which took me down a wormhole because I didn't just want it to be any film that was 90 minutes or less. I wanted it to be something that meant a lot to me that doesn't really get any coverage now and that people might have missed. So, for example, one of my favourite films, Grease 2, actually gets an awful lot of coverage, largely due to the fact that the entire song list is available to sing at Lucky Voice karaoke bars, whereas The Station Agent, I think we've all kind of forgotten about, but then you look at the cast list and you watch it again and it's like it's going back in time. It's like going back in time to 2003 when it was released or realistically the early 2000s when it was filmed. It's such a time capsule and it's got such exceptional moments in it. And it's a really, really lovely watch. So I thought that would be perfect. I would like that to be my contribution to your wonderful film festival. Miramax Home Entertainment presents the critically acclaimed The Station Agent, winner of numerous awards including the Audience Award for Best Drama at the 2003 Sundance Film Festival. Finn McBride, Peter Dinklage, a loner with a passion for trains, inherits an abandoned train depot (laughs) in the middle of nowhere. Place that suits him just fine. I don't think that's right. (laughs) Because all he wants is to be left alone. But that is not to be. Soon after moving in, he meets Olivia, Patricia Clarkson, a distracted artist, and Joe, Bobby Carnavale, a friendly Cuban, (laughs) with an insatiable hunger for conversation, who parks his hot dog truck right next door. With absolutely nothing in common, they find their isolated lives coming together in friendship none of them could foresee. I think there's a couple of typos on the back. <laughs> this sounds like the worst film ever. Cat, got, why did you choose it? I know! That is almost like a parody of a terrible and deeply specific American indie film with a passion for trains. Yeah. I mean, what good ever came from a passion for trains? And I say that having had a great passion for the Mallard in my youth. A friendly Cuban. <laughs> Literally nearly died at that point. Just like, gosh, a friendly Cuban. Just... You know, like a cigar, just rolled on your knee. Wonderful. I think for fans of synopses, we should point out we're reading from the back of the rental copy of The Station Agent, which I've had in my possession probably for about 14 or so years since the film first came out, because I remember seeing this film when it first came out, and I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved it so much, I bought the rental copy <laughs> as my well, personal copy it, to Because otherwise, you know, the people from Blockbuster will track you down eventually. First of all, we should point out that if the synopsis wasn't enough, we will have a spoiler-filled chat about the film. So if you haven't seen the film yet, would highly recommend pausing this and going to your nearest streaming service. So Kat, we sort of mentioned it at the top of the show, but did you did you see this in the cinema when it first came out? Yes, I saw it in my local cinema in Durham when I was at university, and I think I'd, I think actually I went along on a matinee with a friend with a friend who I would later date. So it was like a perfect friend you might later date film because we were both sort of like God, we're both quite cool, both at university, both going to an art house cinema in the daytime. Oh my God! Oh my God! There's a there's an actor in it who's also a dwarf. My God, this is very oh God, Patricia Clarkson's in it. Fantastic, ticking all the boxes. But I was 
super surprised because unlike the other art house matinee that I remember seeing, which was the saddest music in the world, which is one of the most batshit films in the history of ever. Please just go to Google afterwards. This was wonderful. It was really, really wonderful. It was a film that I felt better for having seen because it wasn't, for example, another Harry Potter film or another superhero film. I was addicted to the X-Men films as well. But it was just, it was a great piece of filmmaking. And I left the cinema feeling like the sun had come out and I got it on DVD. And again, another reason that I I wanted to have this was because for, for the years when I was at university and then when I started at Empire, I had like a very bijou DVD collection that was very carefully curated. Every one of those films had a story and those in my book collection would sort of travel with me from home to home. And that the station agent came to, came with me to about 11 houses in the end. I think I subsequently got rid of pretty much all my DVDs a couple of years ago. But it's it's just magical, as we will now talk about in a spoiler-filled discussion. <laughs> what I like about this film is it feels like a time capsule from 2003, 2004, where it felt like a lot of Sundance films were sort of coming through. And it's probably a little bit aligned to my own life, where I was at uni at that point, and I was definitely like, I want to see all the cool indie films. But I just felt like they were e- more they were like more easily accessible at that point uh, than they were previously, I think due to things like DVDs and all of that sort of stuff. Stuff. But I think it was around the same sort of time as things like Juno and Thumbsucker and that sort of uh, indie scene where everybody in those films is now super famous, like The Station Agent, which has, it's one of Peter Dinklage's first roles. And now, I mean, like, he's a household name. Also, Patricia Clarkson, consistently brilliant in this time. Bobby Cannavale, I mean, he's, 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 he's kind of always played the same character <laughs> and he's always in supporting roles. But again, I think he's, he's just got bigger and bigger and bigger as, as time's gone on. Well, I'd always thought about the station agent in terms of the cast, exactly. And as I was watching it, I was like, oh, I better check who wrote and directed it, see if they've done anything else since this nice indie film. Tom McCarthy, yes, he has done some other things since. He co-wrote Up for heaven's sake. And yeah, oh yeah, he won some Academy Awards for a film called Spotlight that he directed and co-wrote. So he's doing quite nicely. But watching it again, I had completely forgotten what a bingo card of recognisable faces this is. There is barely anybody in it who hasn't either gone on to do amazing things or who I didn't recognise from other things. There's three cast members of Sex and the City in there. John Slattery, who obviously we better know as Roger from Mad Men, Bobby Cannavale, of course, and and um, Lynn Cohen, the sort of shop owner. So that was just wonderful, just three of them on their own. And Michelle Williams, of course, in quite a sort of a small but perfectly formed role, as I believe is the term. It's funny, she's got the and credit on the back of the box. Well, she was Jen from Dawson's Creek. That was a big true, time yes. for her. <laughs> but thinking thinking about it in terms of university, exactly, I think it is such a time capsule. I mean, we might come on to the issue of wardrobe later. That's incredibly specific to a very particular time. But also some of the shots I just recognise from the early 2000s. They sort of quite wide sort of picture postcard things, a couple of dudes hanging out on a step, but at very carefully set levels. You know, one's looking over there, one's looking down. There's some, you know, furrowed brows and sort of like rueful laughter. It's amazing. Really takes you straight back. Great that you mentioned Tom McCarthy there. He also went on to direct The Cobbler, which was not as well received. <laughs> but then he won an Academy Award for Spotlight and everybody forgot about it. But this is his directorial debut, which is remarkable because I think this film is, is, it is small, but it is perfectly formed. And he wrote it. He won a BAFTA 
for his first film for writing the screenplay. That's disgusting, really, isn't it? I know, it makes me feel sick. <laughs> uh, but he's he's someone who's an actor. He's been a you know like a very consistently jobbing actor for a lot of his career, and then he goes and directs an indie film and. We've all heard that story where it ends quite badly <laughs> and you never hear from that person again. But he, he's living the dream. He had his film at Sundance. He won the awards and now he's an Oscar winning director. I think what is really satisfying about going back to this film is the fact that, yes, lots of people in it have become incredibly successful. But my God, they worked for it. This is a film made with, I mean, we look back retrospectively and go, oh, goodness me, all of you have been in it. I mean, even Richard Kind, like your man from Scrubs, I, I will always think of him as your man from Scrubs, it is, turns up as the lawyer at the beginning. It's, these are all people who have worked incredibly hard to get where they are. I mean, after this, it was, after this film came out, it was still like a good eight or so years before Game of Thrones for Peter Dinklage, for example. And he worked incredibly hard to just to, to do something that is incredibly reasonable, i.e. not get constantly cast as a flipping leprechaun or, or you know, a joke in some way and to actually have roles where his physical appearance is, you know, by the by. I mean, obviously, it's referenced significantly in The Station Agent mm. and and done really well, actually. But so much of this is about his own performance to the extent that obviously when Game of Thrones was casting, they were just like, we just want Peter Dinklage for Tyrion Lannister. And Finn and Tyrion have got a lot in common in terms of, I mean, obviously not not as funny or as wise, but still just that sort of dark, dry sense of humour and also that sense of, of stillness, although Tyrion less obsessed with public transport. Let me ask you a question, Finn. Do people have clubs? What do you mean? No, like a train of the month club. Yeah, they're clubs. What do you guys do? Well, uh, they get together and they look at old photographs and sometimes they watch a movie. Like, it's such a breakthrough performance for Peter Dinklage. You know, he's quite a reserved character. He's very insular, but he, he has to sort of convey quite a lot of emotions just through through his face and, and through his performance. And I think he's such a good find. Like, I cannot imagine this film without Peter Dinklage. He is absolutely fantastic. And like thinking of this being Tom McCarthy's directorial debut, he does an incredible job of getting absolutely everybody where they should be to get the very best out of them. I mean, Dinklage obviously has an incredibly expressive face and can say more with one unraised eyebrow than I can by just, you know, as I am now, jangling my hands around going, <laughs> my God, he's amazing. His posture, his clothing, again, the per that permanently spotless white shirt, mm. even though that's that seems to be the only clothing that he actually has. It's just, it's almost like he's an everyman. And I suppose in a sense, he is that everyman character of just the sort of, I just I want to be alone with my trains. And then everybody sort of comes and interferes with him. But he's he just brings that across so beautifully. And in a way that portrays inner depths even though on the surface of it this could just be yet another american indie oh god guy with guy with hidden depths that we never see but we see those with dinklage and that's incredible absolutely i think he's 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 really well written but really well played and and it's so much reaction to him because you're right he just he moves to the sticks he wants to live in the abandoned train station agent's house and he just wants to really really wants to be alone and the joy of the writing is that he's alongside these two brilliant characters i think joe which is a bit of a footnote on the back of the dvd but i think joe is amazing he's the exact opposite and he's like this like puppy dog who just wants attention 
And there's such a good yin and yang, don't you think? So much so. <laughs> and actually, I've been... The other TV programme that I've been hugely enjoying and is very much on my mind is Derry Girls, which is about a sort of really unusual selection of relatives who also become incredibly firm friends. And with Joe, Joe is very much the equivalent of Michelle, who would in all normal circumstances, have nothing to do with her incredibly nerdy family and be off with, like, the popular mean girls. Joe should, by rights, be a popular mean guy. And we see that with some of his his friends or some of his acquaintances who sort of turn up there. And yet he and Olivia are completely drawn to Finn. And I think part of that is it seems like they're extremely lonely extroverts. Mm. They need to draw on on other people but then there is something in Finn and there is something that I think feeds them because they're both deeply lonely people and I think Finn is so happy and content in his company that if you are a lonely person there is something incredibly attractive in that he's just able to be and he doesn't he doesn't want to hang out and drink Joe's beers or anything he doesn't he just he just wants Olivia to stop nearly running him over and that sort of thing but then ever so slowly through the film it's it's just lovely because it's not just him opening up and going oh my god i see the value of people he sees the value of these people and that is wonderful because i think one of the things that we want most in life is to be seen for who we are to be recognized and to be appreciated and to find our tribe whether that's in our families or in our friends or in people that we meet later in life and it's I think when I first saw it, I just thought, oh, this is a nice film about Finn. And now I'm, I see it and I'm like, I see it for every single one of those people in that film. And it is just beautiful. Absolutely. I think the joy of Finn is that he allows people to be themselves because he is, you know, he is, he's quite accepting of people. I guess that's sort of encountered with how people often you know, look at him because he's a man with dwarfism. And he's got something about that character where, there's so much going on with Olivia. Like she's an artist and she's doing this and she's got this traumatic thing she's going through. But actually she can't be that in front of other people, but she can in front of Finn because he just accepts her. I think that's really nice to see. Like ultimately it comes down to this tight friendship that forms from three people who have nothing in common, which is very, it's like such a joy to watch. <laughs> it is. And I think the thing that is particularly clever is bringing in the character of Cleo into it, who is played by Raven Goodwin, who was in Lovely and Amazing with Brenda Blethyn before that. And because she initially, you're just like, I don't I don't understand who you are. You're just a child following him around. And the ch- children, obviously, we've seen previously in the film have been sort of like, ah, you know, dopey, where, where are your other seven dwarves and that sort of thing? Mm. You know, where's Snow White? And you worry initially that she's going to be like that. And she does sort of run off and everything, but she's always curious. But she she stops Finn from being the wise dwarf of the hills who allows other characters to develop because she is there for Finn to develop. I think that relationship is really, obviously not the thrust of the story at all, but a really important relationship because she's the only character who asks him about him and she mm. asks about trains and it's like his passion. Like It's so nice that they have that connection when the other characters really talk about themselves kind of in front of him. Mm. And she's she's lost as well. Or if not lost, then she's kind of just left alone. Mm. And I love, I love that she's having fun in the old railway carriages and stuff when Olivia comes to visit. Because it's almost like she's a reflection of Finn in that way too. But she doesn't... She, she won't just sort of quietly accept... Or, or go through the adult niceties that 
other people would do of why he doesn't want to do a certain thing or why he likes this. She just she's a kid. She just wants an explanation. She doesn't have those social nuances yet. He can't get away with the stuff that he can do with other people, I think, is it? He can't hide with her. Hey, what are you doing? I'm uh, searching the trucks for the company name. Well, these are trains, not trucks. The wheels in the trains are called the trucks. What grade are you in? I'm finished with school. Are you a midget? No. Where do you live? In the depot. My name is Clea. My name's Finn. When I rewatched this film, I got really nostalgic for this type of movie. And I don't know if they necessarily make or release films like this anymore. Have you, like, as a big cinema fan, have you seen anything that you would compare to The Station Agent? Not recently. And I have to say that's because in recent years, what I need and what I want from the cinema has completely changed. We're not living in a very nice time at the moment. And I've got, like, real-world worries. Whereas at university, my main worries were am I going to graduate? Mm -hmm. And uh, when am I going to get it on with this friend? (laughs) And that was that was literally it. And if I could get some more eyeliner by tea time. Whereas now, obviously, with the political climate that we live in globally and nationally, when I go to the cinema, I want to go and see something like Shazam. You want hard escapism. (laughs) Hard escapism. And I think also because the kind of film writing that I do tends to be, it's not necessarily as immediate I wrote I wrote a, a sort of retrospective of Titanic when it came out again, The Telegraph, and for example, like a, a piece about this thing, this woman called Reese Taylor who was horrendously raped by a gang of of white men, and there was an amazing documentary about her. So I'm not sort of writing about the films that are coming out right now, or if I am, then they're not necessarily the sort of I don't know the super super big ones. And actually, I have to say, some of the some of the films that might be comparable, like Greta Gerwig's films, have mm. just left me completely cold. I just haven't got them at all. So, no, basically. Maybe I it really is. like Shazam. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite bits in the film is, you know, the characters, they, they're quite slow to meet up and, and things. But once they, they click, they click really fast. And before you know it, they're actually working with Finn on his passion, which is trains. And they are chasing a train and they're making a movie, which is apparently a thing that people do. Totally blew my mind. And they're going to put a film screening on at Olivia's house. And I, I love that. It's wonderful. It's the sort of thing that you did as kids. And... Like, Olivia just leaving that camcorder on his doorstep is such a precious moment. But exactly, it's just that sort of, that casual investment in somebody else's passion. There's no need to sort of prove that it's worthy. They're just like, you're into it, that's amazing, let's go and do it. Hey, Olivia, you got a garlic press? No. How can you not have a garlic press? Still no. I'm gonna go, you keep talking, I'm gonna go cook without the garlic press. I'm not used to having people in my house, especially loud people. It's a nice house. Yeah. David bought it as a getaway place, and moved out here and got away. We should talk about Patricia Clarkson, because she is brilliant in this. And I think Tom McCarthy said he's really good friends with Bobby Cannavale. So when he was writing it, Bobby Cannavale was in mind. They found Dinklage quite early on, and Patricia Clarkson, he was a total wildcard, basically. And the three of them have such great chemistry together. It's perfect. Patricia Clarkson 
feels like she's sort of bigger now than ever before, maybe mostly for TV. I don't know what your relationship with, with Patricia Clarkson's like these days. So I just think of her as the icon of American indie films <laughs> and all of those words being capitalised. It's so odd. Whereas you, you see her here and it's just, it's lovely because she she is playing a character who was so of that time. I mean, we talked about Sex and the City characters. Patricia Patricia Clarkson's incredibly erect nipples all the way this film just remind me of that episode with Miranda. I'm really sorry if I've just alienated any non-Sex and the City viewers here, but I mean, that was also a classic moment. And she's just... She's not what I ever expect from seeing her because I think we've got so used to the concept of the late 90s, early, early noughties American indie tropes that you forget about people who can just really inhabit a character and not in the sense of being like, I'm in an indie film, so all my words are just going to be monotone and also in a slightly minor key, as though I'm delivering a really substandard Shakespearean speech. She's just there and she's filled with light and she's, but she's filled with light in the sense of a slightly cracked jar. And you just know that at some point, something's going to let go and you're not sure what's happened but also as I've as I've got older I identify with her in a way that I never would have done when I was sort of like 19 20 I mean I've never been pregnant I haven't lost a child but the absolute phenomenal explosive high-pitched grief that she depicts in the most subtle and gentle ways is extraordinary what i i think i really like about how everybody plays it is it's a 90 minutes or less movie but there's like years of like life behind all of these characters and i don't know what tom mccarthy put in the water or something but like he just got it right everybody feels genuine but that's what good art should be and that's what a good book should be that's what a good film should be not the sense that you've just sort of like turned up with a roller ball and just sort of gone here's a character and put on like one coat of Dulux, you need that feeling that that character has always existed. I mean, it's like, it's one of the reasons that I'm in a book club devoted to the, an inverted commas here, bonkbuster author, like Jilly Cooper. Jilly Cooper gets such, so slated by people who've never read her books, but there's a reason why Harper's called her the Jane Austen of her time. She she writes people who jump off the page with fully realised lives, and that's what we get in this film. And that's that's what we want from cinema. That's the thing that draws us in. We need to feel that there are people in charge who know what they're doing. And either that is by or everybody behind the scenes doing it in such a seamless way that you don't see the joins and those people are just there. Or by the sense of just the plot being drawn along so brilliantly. This is a really quiet film, but it sings. So The Station Agent is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Really pleased to have this film in. It was a real joy to rewatch. And actually, you're right, you know, choosing this film because not enough people saw it on release. Even though, you know, it won a BAFTA. Patricia Clarkson won six supporting actress awards at various film festivals. It really put sort of definitely Tom McCarthy on the map and I think was is a notable point in everybody's careers. Nobody's talking about it. It's not available on Blu-ray. You know, you can stream it on Amazon or watch the ex-rental DVD at my house. Um, <laughs> so I think actually showing this on a big screen with an audience will be a hell of a lot of fun. But at this festival, we don't just want to show the film. We want to immerse the audience. What would what would be your sort of idea to complement the screening? What would you like to bring to the station agent at the festival? So, in my mind, 
this bit is going to be the site-specific screening of the festival. In my mind also, this will be a heavily subsidised section, and I've got option A and option B, depending on how subsidised we've got it. The first one is a dinner with screening on the Orient Express. The journalist Sean, Me- Sean Meads took me for a jolly on this when we both worked at Domestic Sluttery, which was one of the most magical evenings of my life. That trip that I went on was amazing because it was themed around a murder mystery. And I would love it to be themed that, for example, some of the secret cinema people come and perform sections of the film on the train, whilst we also get to have an amazing dinner If, however, it's not going to be that heavily subsidised, because also the red carpet drinks at Victoria Station beforehand are quite costly, then I would like to take us to Dungeness, where there is an amazing converted railway carriage. Fairly small, it's just like a little boutique sort of Airbnb situation. But I really want to get that feeling of being on a train and but also on a train that's not necessarily like, you know, Southwest trains going down to (laughs) Petersfield on with your gold card return sort of thing. You want that feeling that Finn has of trains from years gone by. And you want that feeling of just sort of being there on something that had a wonderful time in the past and is now not quite there anymore. It sounds like you've got a lot of love for trains. Have you ever been train chasing? I was most obsessed with trains at the same time I was obsessed with sharks. So when I was about four or five, no, yeah, seven or eight, I would go to Alex Herbert's house after school and we would watch documentaries about vintage trains or sharks. And then we would draw beach scenes involving sharks and use a lot of red pencil to draw sharks having had a little chomp on people's legs. Creepy, creepy children. But, you know, trains and sharks, hand in hand. Okay, I'm trying to think of what film features both of those. Uh, sharks in Venice! <laughs> I think maybe because we we are blessed at this festival in that we seem to be able to make wishes happen. I think we get the Orient Express to Dungeness and we have a stock of red crayons oh. for us to relive the shark drawings of your youth. <laughs> And then we'll get to this abandoned train carriage in Dungeness and we'll watch the movie in the train carriage, much like watching the film at Olivia's house on a pulled down sheet oh. uh, played straight from the VHS on the camera. Oh, God, perfect. I'll tell you what, this ending is much more satisfying than Desert Island Discs. If you could have one person from the film attend to this screening, maybe for an introduction or a question and answer session, who would it be? <laughs> it's got to be Peter Dinklage. Like I was going back through to see how many film, how many prizes this film had won, and I was, I was genuinely gobsmacked that he was nominated and didn't win a thing. He's so bloody good. He's so bloody good. And also, I just think he'd be such an interesting person to hear. Not just obviously in terms of, not just in terms of his Game of Thrones work, but just in terms of his career and, you know, what it's, what a bloody battle it is. There is still such disproportionate lack of non-able, non-able-bodied, non-if you like regular-looking people on screen. I mean, I've recently got really into Pose on BBC Two, which was previously on FX in the States, and that's one. Of, that's one of the. That's got a lot of transgender actors in it, and it's just like, oh, these people are out there if you bother looking, mm. and it is just that thing that a lot of people don't bother looking, and. That's just tragic because we are being absolutely denied brilliant acting talent and also the chance to let people see themselves on screen. You know, representation matters. 
I mean, I am a, a cisgender, white, very middle class woman who came from an extremely privileged background. But I have to say, growing up, the only references to anybody who was six foot one was in terms of them being a catwalk model. And I've pretty much always been a size 14. I'm not a catwalk model. That gave me terrible body image issues. And it's important to see who you are. And again, you know, imagine if Peter Dinklage had never been cast. Imagine the amazing stuff that we would have been denied. I think the joy of this film and and you know and him playing it is you could rewrite the film and it wouldn't take very much to rewrite the film with a different actor and you could still do the film about the insular guy. Yeah. I think the fact that it's Peter Dinklage and there's there's sort of a, a couple of things you know he's an insular guy who's dealing with dwarfism but actually that's not what the film's about. Yeah. I think that's really great to see and we haven't seen it enough and. I don't think Dinklage has really done a drama like this. He's done fantasy and sci-fi mm. and stuff. An elf. An elf. Yep. He did elf right after this, in fact. <laughs> but hes I'd love to see him come back to do an indie drama. Yeah. Can that happen? Game of Thrones is over soon, right? Yeah. Maybe he can go back to his Sundance roots. Yes. <laughs> and it needs, to, it needs to open doors for other people. I mean, uh, crossing, crossing the streams a little bit, but this is a huge thing that I see mentioned over and over again by black journalists on Twitter. It's just like, don't just commission us to write about the experience of being a black woman or a black man you know commissioners to write about like crap stuff commissioners to write about game of thrones we like television too and i think there is a huge danger that if you don't fit the traditional or if you like the usual hollywood mold that you'll just be like oh okay we need you to come and and do that thing whereas again the joy of this film is Finn is like a massive train nerd who wants to be alone and that's his that's the main thrust of the story And it's it's a shame that we haven't really seen anything like this since 2003. Station Agent 2. Yes. I hear it coming. <laughs> more stations, more time. Oh, wouldn't it be great? Jason Statham tie-up. Transporter and the station agent. Makes sense. <laughs> so I like asking people this towards the end of the podcast. Could this film or should this film be any longer than 90 minutes? Absolutely not. They're just sort of extend dinner scenes and that sort of thing. And there's just the right amount of aimless content if you like and I think any longer and this film would be in danger of becoming whimsical and in a bad way whereas right now it's excellent so there we have it the station agent is in the 90 minutes or less film festival Kat where can people find more about your work and see what you're up to on social media thank you so much for asking Sam I would love to chat to people on Twitter where I'm at Kat Brown Instagram where I'm Kat Brown Kat Brown writes apparently she can't speak though (laughs) and I've got a website and portfolio and all that bobbins which is catbrownwrites.com and thank you listeners please do like favourite subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice we're also now available on Spotify. Uh, you can contact us at 90minfilmfest on Twitter and Instagram, and the show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. Our music is by Martin Osterwick, the show is edited by Luke Smith, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye.